Hello there, it's Peter here. Our archive of time travels is pretty vast now, with about 150 episodes. Last month, we replayed one of our favourite conversations. It's with Dermot McCulloch talking about Thomas Cromwell in the year 1536. We had some lovely feedback from that, so we thought that we'd make this a regular feature. So here's another gem from our archive. The episode that you're about to hear is from 2020. It's of Artemis talking to the academic Rebecca Rag Sykes about a fascinating subject, the Neanderthals. I hope you enjoy it. Artemis Irvin and in today's episode we're traveling back further in time than we've ever gone before on this podcast. To be precise, around 126,000 years ago to meet our long extinct kindred, the Neanderthals. For many of us, casting the mind back as far as even the early medieval period can sometimes prove a conceptual challenge. When reading about ancient civilizations, the Greeks, Romans and Egyptians sometimes seem more like distant historical subjects than actual human beings. And yet, in comparison to the historical period that we'll be looking at today, these subjects are practically modern. Between about 400,000 to 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals walked the earth. They hunted and crafted tools with skill, they loved and buried their fellow man, and they even made art. Introducing us to these enigmatic figures is the archaeologist and writer Dr Rebecca Ragsykes. Rebecca studied archaeology through to PhD level before completing a prestigious Marie Curie postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Bordeaux. Her first book, Kindred, Neanderthal, Life, Love, Death and Art, brings together 21st century scientific understanding of Neanderthals to challenge the stereotype that these were knuckle-dragging inferior predecessors to the enlightened Homo sapien. Since its publication last month, Kindred has already been selected as one of the best books of 2020 by the Sunday Times, and Professor Brian Cox has described it as beautiful, evocative and authoritative. So you can imagine it was such a pleasure that last week Rebecca took me on a travel into very deep time indeed. Thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time, Rebecca, and congratulations on publishing your book. That's That must be really exciting. I have to say, I, I found it not only an incredibly informative book, I mean, it's literally just full, every single page is full of so much information that I'm sure most people would have absolutely no idea about. But I also have to admit that I found it very moving. Oh. And a couple of times it brought me literally to tears. Oh, um, that's so not. I'm yeah. so pleased. That's what I was trying to to infuse the information that that you know like as a specialist we know that there's just vast amounts of really cool stuff that does never you know never gets beyond the scientific journals into even though neanderthals grab the headlines a lot of really fascinating stuff just doesn't really get out to the public and i wanted to give people you know a real deep experience of that but mm -hmm. also connect people you know to to that that human past that that neanderthals clearly represent for so many people so i'm mm. so glad that that you had that reaction that's exactly what i was hoping yeah exactly i think there is something very emotive about being brought face to face in the way that you do in such detail and with the humanity of these people who are no longer with us you know a totally extinct people but they're just they they really come alive on the page there's obviously never not a good time to reflect on on our humanity because it makes you think about homo sapiens humanity as well obviously mm. um but i was wondering if there was a moment which first sparked your inspiration for writing the book and you thought yes now is a good time to write this oh gosh um Honestly, I kind of feel like this book has been waiting for me to write it for a long time. I, I was always really interested in the past, like even as a child, when my family went on holidays and we would go to all the National Trust places around and, you know, I was always imagining myself in the past in those places. But then when the, some of the holidays we went to on the continent, um, to France and some, some of the caves and the museums and those places really blew me away. And, you know, I can remember watching sort of in the museums like a video of somebody napping like making stone tools and I 
you know virtually had to be dragged away back into the car park to go because i was so fascinated by it mm. um and so this this interest been there for a long time and like you say each chapter is looks at a different theme and it kind of each chapter adds another layer to your understanding of who they were and what their lives looked like and i was wondering if you had a particularly favorite area of um interest uh, a chapter that you enjoyed writing the most Oh, that's really tricky. I know which ones were hard. <laughs> um, I mean, my my training uh, through my master's and my PhD was in stone tools. So um, chapter six of the book is was all about their, their stone tool technology and sort of really that's a difficult thing for most people to kind of engage with because it's it's hard to to just read about that and understand it. You know, um, mm. actually, that's quite a visual thing, really. Um, so that one was tricky to do, especially because I, you know, as it, be, it being my my specific area, I was like tempted to like, you know, go far too much into detail. Probably people think <laughs> it's too detailed already that chapter bit. But I really tried to, you know, simplify things right down to concepts that are not going to be confusing to use no jargon. I think one of the, one of the ones of my favourite ones that I, I really enjoyed was about the um, skeleton of the baby. Oh, um, yeah. And the mother um, kind of imagining the mother giving birth to this child and then nursing it and then it dying and then having to eventually abandon the child but wanting to bury it and kind of protect it from any um, harm still and it being like lying under the surface for thousands of years yeah. and then being found and and um, I, I just I think it, it, it put, placed a really good connection between where we are now and kind of tying that showing that line that connection because it's such a long time ago it's really difficult to get a grip on what that means for something to yeah. have been you know 200,000 years ago 400,000 years ago but that immediately brought for me like a connection between then and now which was really powerful yeah I think that's the interesting thing about about sort of being an archaeologist and Neanderthals it is it's true for me as well um for for myself and other colleagues as well that you know you it to some extent you have to remove yourself emotionally and you know Neanderthal babies are fascinating because mm -hmm. of what they can tell us about growth and development and the species and you know and um, it's an incredible it's the subject is um incredibly interdisciplinary as you were describing earlier and it does require it's not just like you say about the archaeology or about the geology or the science of it it's also about those more philosophical questions about um what the psychology might have been or how much it felt or you know what what would motivate someone to bury something in the ground you know all of those kind of things that only when you combine all of those different disciplines together can you get as full a picture as what you convey in the book yeah yeah I mean it's tricky because you know the, the question about burial and that's always been something that people have debated for a long time and people bring to that debate their own you know assumptions and beliefs about what is meaningful in you know in human interactions with bodies you know what what we do with the dead and what is is a is a permitted level of of meaningful treatment of a body and things like that but we're often coming from a particular modern western understanding of what you do with a body what you should do with it what you shouldn't do with it mm. um and you know therefore expectations that if we're not going to find neanderthals laid out straight in sort of a square pit then it doesn't mean anything what they did i don't accept that at all mm. and you only have to look back at you know the past thousand years of christian tradition to see how much it's changed in terms of what people believed was a respectful, meaningful way of dealing with um, with the dead. It's mm. totally transformed today, even. Um, Absolutely, so. yeah. So the usual format of this of this podcast is obviously that our guests choose one year in history, but that's not really um, quite, <laughs> quite so easy with this subject. So if you could travel back in time, perhaps it's more it's better to ask you what period would you travel back in time to? Yeah. So. Although we have fantastic dating methods, we have a whole range of dating methods. Uh, they don't give you one year <laughs> in Neanderthal archaeology. Doesn't happen. So um, I will choose a particular, roughly ten thousand year period in the middle kind of part of of Neanderthal's existence. So starting around one hundred and twenty six thousand years ago. So I mean, obviously, for from the perspective of the the other guests that you have on this podcast, that sounds um, a bit bonkers and ten ten millennia, <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're probably um, jealous. 
um but i mean that that's about 500 generations um but if you're looking at the overall span of of the time that neanderthals were in existence that's only about three percent um of of their whole sort of chronological realm so the reason i chose this period um it's known it's known as the emian um in britain we call it the ipswichian they're basically um climate terms based on um, sites where you had uh, particular pollen sequences and things which identify this as a particular climate period and why I've chosen it is it's the opposite of what most people will be picturing Neanderthals as you know the world that they lived in um, this is a warm climate period it's what we call an interglacial rather than a glacial or a, a cold ice age you know a lot of people will will be thinking like the ice age but there was more than one ice age there were many um cycles going from from cold the last ice age we had ended about uh, 11 to 10,000 years ago then it was slightly warmer and then it was colder you know and it goes right back so there's multiple phases um this was the warmest interglacial that the neanderthals lived in it's actually the warmest interglacial that any hominid species uh, encountered and survived so it really it's it's more it's nearly tropical <laughs> rather than tundra and the reason it was warmer was because uh, basically subtle differences in in where the earth's uh, orbital position was meant that more sunlight fell on the earth during the summer um which uh, was enough to to really dramatically shift average temperatures up between somewhere between two to four degrees warmer than today which is uh, which doesn't sound like much but actually it's a lot mm. it's enough that we can see for example in alpine caves up in the mountains now the snow line had had moved well up and the stalagmite growth in those caves starts to begin because it suddenly got warm and moist and also the the melting glaciers and um and ice sheets all meant that the oceans were rising quite rapidly at the beginning and certainly reached somewhere between five to eight metres above um, where the shoreline is today, uh, which is dramatic. You know, that's that's a vast amount um, of difference. Mm. Um, unlike when the sea levels go down a lot because it gets super cold, the coastline itself doesn't change that much in terms of huge amounts of land being flooded, but in particular regions, it was quite dramatic. The big change in terms of the landscape and the world that they were living in was not only was it was it warm, but as the last ice age before that ended, the vegetation was really, really shifting as well. And so instead of open, primarily open landscapes with tundra and sort of grassy steppe, what you see straight away at the beginning of the Eemian is a, is a huge growth in trees mm. um, and forests essentially begin to spread all over Eurasia and and it's a warm it's a warm woodland world and it's so different to people's general understanding of of neanderthals as like hyper arctic adapted creatures and mm. um, that that's why i wanted to choose this really to kind of explore this other aspect of their life so in this period where would you like to go for your first scene I want to go to Britain uh, around 123,000 years ago, so um, a little bit into the Eemian and sort of explore what's going on. So uh, when the Eemian started uh, about 126,000 years ago, it was quite dry and hot straight away. Um, it was really quite a rapid change. Um, and it you know it must have been a real sort of shock <laughs> to mm. to the environment not only to neanderthals but to all the animals and things as well um however it did it took a few millennia for the forests to really start to to grow so by about 123,000 years ago um you start to see real uh, large scale woodland um but it it was not a single sort of static entity so at the in the earlier phases um if we could sort of try and fly through time you have um we can we know from the pollen data is what really tells us this it's it's like a, if you put a, a core down through ancient um lake bed deposits you can see how the pollen changes through time going up wow. through that core and that shows you what the landscape was like um so we can we can literally see this woodland sort of mutating from cooler species after that uh, previous ice age, so like birch and juniper and pine. The pine forest starts to get established, but then quite quickly it begins to, to look like an oak 
forest, you know, something that you would see pretty much in Britain today. Um, but with elm as well, um, hazel, yew, linden, ivy, boxwood, and then eventually um, through those few thousand years, it's, it matures into, into a hornbeam forest, hornbeam and beech. But if you go to 123,000 years ago, um, that's when it was at its warmest, really. Um, and the forest is very dense. And if you'd been walking around the forests in Britain at that time, you would have heard rather than these pine forest birds um, for your dawn chorus, like crossbills or crested tits. And by the time you get to 123,000 years ago, you'd be listening to something that is pretty much what our woodlands now should sound like mm. for example we've got we've got jays you know and roller birds as well beautiful roller birds so the the kind of the the richness of the dawn chorus would have been immense mm. um and then as it gets cooler as well you you then sort of see the changes to like capercaillie black grouse um and those kind of species so the point in time when it's warmest it it actually would be quite recognizable to people today and would this... there be neanderthal communities living in britain at that time yet they would have been in living in the forests or well that's the strange thing um we know from the continent that neanderthals were living in this in this you know full-on forest environment um you know they were they were walking around through the trees, they were living underneath dappled light, and it was hot, you know, mm. um, and they would have been pretty much, you know, tree people. They would have grown up surrounded by gigantic trees, mm. maybe bigger even than, than we see in, in forests today, you know, the, the, the lost medieval forests for example, um, yeah. those trees were all cut down for naval timber and things. And it does make you wonder, you know, what those trees look like. And I wonder what these trees look like that were just, you know, undisturbed at all for thousands of years, these, yeah. these ancient deciduous forests. But although we know Neanderthals were definitely on the continent, it doesn't look like there was anybody in Britain at all people researchers have looked at this question for a long time because it seemed a bit strange but as far as we can tell in the in this warm period in the emian there was nobody here but the animals so that's quite a strange idea so if you were a traveler through time you would be walking around you'd be hearing you know all the bird song you'd see the light the streams all the insects buzzing around you see animal trails everywhere but no people, no traces of people at all um, across the whole of the British Isles. We don't think there was anyone here. Wow. And the reason for that um, is probably two things. One is that the at the end of the ice age before that, the ice sheets had come down quite low towards northern Europe. And in front of ice sheets, when they start to melt, you get what's called a proglacial lake, which just basically means it's a lake, a huge lake in front of the ice sheets. Um, as all that meltwater starts to accumulate. Um, and there was, we know that there was one of these massive lakes um, basically running across where the North Sea is now. Mm. But at that time, there was a chalk ridge that used to run between the continent and Britain. And that lake burst through that in like a catastrophic flood. It was absolutely immense. Wow. And it was, it was so sort of, you know, monstrously violent that it, the scouring that it left on the bottom of the channel it looks more like what you see on Mars today. You know, these just gigantic valleys um, battered really? out by this cataclysm. So that left... Sorry, they're still visible today, those, yeah. Yes, uh, wow. you only see it with sonar, though, because it's under the channel now. They're underneath, like an overburden of, of other sediment, but you can see what happened to the, to the bedrock. So that event probably left that whole landscape... Um, which was dry after the lake had gone, completely trashed, just like a wasteland, no vegetation, just bare ground. So it's not really a very promising area for hunter-gatherers to want to cross in the first place. So th that may well have been difficult to cross. And then it looks like the climate change at the beginning of the Emian was so rapid that the sea level may have come back very fast and cut Britain off before Neanderthals actually started moving towards, you know, thinking about going over there. Mm. Um, so animals got over, some animals got over, and it may be that the species that made it were ones that could easily cross either boggy ground or relatively open water or rivers. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very strange sort of concept. We know that Neanderthals were, you know, little smoke trails coming up from the forest on the continent and across the channel, which was a little bit larger, 
we know, for example, that from old excavations underneath London, for example, people often sort of quote, oh, you know, there were lions and hippos under Trafalgar Square and stuff. We know that, that these animals were all there, but not people. Well, do we know when the first humans came to Britain? <laughs> Well, Neanderthals had been there long before that. They okay. had already been here. And then the that previous Ice Age was so cold that it, it seems that they abandoned um, Britain. But they were there for a long time before that. The oldest Neanderthal site in Britain that's like a, a full fully Neanderthal, you would expect them, is about 270,000 years ago. And that's in Wales, um, Pontnaweth, it's called. Um, and then we have earlier sort of pre-Neanderthal um, sites as well, um, 400,000 years and, and way back as well. So like hominins were in Britain many times, but through these climatic pulses, when it got super cold, mm. Britain was usually abandoned. But um, but when it was um, warmer, um, they would come back. But the Emian is different. And it may be because, as I say, that the, the sea level rose so fast or was just higher than normal. I don't know that uh, that they just didn't get a chance to come over. But horses didn't come either, which is very interesting. So they Neanderthals and horses only returned to Britain somewhere around 65,000 years ago. So much later, mm-hmm. um, as things got cooler again and the sea level drops and there is this huge area of land in between us and, um, and the continent, then horses and Neanderthals come back as soon as it's possible, they do. So something was clearly preventing it. You use the word homonym. That's right, is it homonym? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just was wondering if we could go over what the what that word means and also before we meet the Neanderthals themselves to kind of clarify exactly. I know there's the there's a misconception that they're somehow a, a previous version of human before we get to our version of human, mm. but that's not right. No, so hominin basically um, just means our close relatives that were, you know, pretty much on the same lineage as us. Um, so we are primates and we are apes mm. and so are chimpanzees, but chimpanzees are not hominins. Um, okay. They did their own thing. They had their own lineage that um, separated off from anything that was ever going to turn into us like seven million years ago so they've been doing their own thing they're just as evolved as us Mm. but they've just went on their own path so where neanderthals and we come from um you're looking at africa Mm. and our origins in the homo genus and so we're both in the homo genus so we're homo sapiens neanderthals are homo neanderthalensis the homo genus we believe evolves in africa somewhere between two and one million years ago what happens but after about a million years ago until about five hundred thousand years ago is a bit tricky because they're not actually masses and masses of fossils or they haven't been till till that recently and but what we do know from the last few decades of work is that there was no sort of single neat little highway leading towards us it's much more like um, not even like a tree or a bush the analogy that we like to use now is like a braided river where you've got sort of rivulets coming and going some of them meeting again um, some of them going off and sort of dissolving and not really doing anything. But the impression is that populations in Africa were in different regions and they had different anatomy, but then almost like a mosaic forming, some of those groups were interacting with each other and features were sort of being shared. And, and eventually for Homo sapiens, hominins that look like us, so we would call them early Homo sapiens, probably very early. That's about 300,000 years ago in Africa. Whereas by that point, Neanderthals were already themselves evolving in uh, Europe and Western Eurasia. Mm. So what we don't know really is where the lineage, where we both come from where that was actually based probably in Africa and and we do know genetically that that is somewhere around 800 to 600,000 years ago the homo lineage split and and what would become us went in one direction what would become Neanderthals and the Denisovans which is another Eurasian hominin population contemporary with Neanderthals they split and then they split again and the Neanderthals went off and, you know, that was their lineage. So they're like Western Eurasians and it appears, although we don't know 
that much that Denisovans were more like Central and Eastern Eurasian hominids, but living at the same time. And we definitely know from the genetics that we were all on occasion meeting and interacting and um, making babies. So there's that as well. <laughs> is, that, is that quite a new bit of a new revelation that's come out in the last few years? Because I, I was listening to a podcast from, I think it was about 10 years ago, where somebody was saying that there was, de- there was no evidence to suggest that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens did interbreed. But that is that not, that's not true anymore. That's literally the last 10 years, basically. Yeah. So... Um, until that point, there was a lot of debate about whether we had ever had any direct ancestry from the Neanderthals themselves. Um, and, you know, there were some view of things which said that we, you know, we, we basically dispersed from Africa and then encountered the Neanderthals but replaced them or they were already going extinct and then we sort of came in afterwards Mm. but that there was no actual interbreeding Mm. Um, but then there was another perspective that said that there were probably very ancient hominin populations across the old world and that there was some kind of gene flow over very long time periods between those different populations which led to sort of homo sapiens emerging in different regions at different times So, so that's not that doesn't seem to be correct either. Mm. What does seem to have happened is that it's, it's slightly more like the first theory, really, that, that we, we did emerge in Africa. But as soon as we start to disperse from Africa, which is a lot earlier than we used to think, it now looks like we were humans that would have looked very much like present day people um, were in the Near East by 180,000 years ago. So super old mm. and right the way across into China by 80,000 at least and in into Australia by 60,000 uh, 65,000 wow. so that that sort of depth of time for which um we were dispersing away from Africa and interacting with these other hominins Neanderthals Denisovans probably even other more archaic species that had um, left Africa two million years ago and have been, you know, hanging out in Eurasia all that time. Mm. We the the span of time during which there is potential for those interactions is so much bigger than we used to think yeah. that it's not surprising that the genetics tells us that that definitely was going on. And yeah. um, I think in your second scene that you'd like to visit, we we meet the Neanderthals and their hunting deer. Would you like to tell us a bit about? Um, yeah about that second scene and about the animals that Neanderthals would have interacted with on the continent. Yeah so um, rather than staying in in Britain where although the forest is very nice there's nobody actually there. (laughs) Nobody to hang out with. Yeah (laughs) Um, this is the the full Emian when it's nice and warm but we're on the continent this time. What I really like about the Emian is how surprising the environment is you know the woodlands themselves are familiar you know the birds and everything but the animals weird Mm. um (laughs) um, some of the animals that had lived during the the colder periods um were there so um aurochs were around which are the the ancestors to um to some of today's cattle species and they were huge like six foot at the shoulder gigantic horns um and so yeah they you wouldn't think of them as forest species but they really were bison as well and people often think of bison as like you know, grass and species, because you're thinking of North American prairie bison. Mm. But bison in Europe um, have been forest species for a long time, and they still live in um, in forests in Poland. Neanderthals ate a lot of food. That's one thing we should get straight at the beginning. <laughs> um, they they basically would take the best of what was around them. So they were big game hunters, mm. but they also would take other stuff. So in the Emian, Neanderthals definitely hunted beavers when they could get them. The, the beavers' tails are full of really good fat. They're excellent nutritionally. Um, and beavers obviously are like these amazing environmental um, sort of architects. They create their own environments, their own niches. In the south of Europe, where it was more arid uh, during some of the, the arid periods of the Emian, uh, you get sort of Asian species like porcupine coming in as well, quite unexpected. Um, and then there are some familiar species like roe deer, you know, people today 
we'll see roe deer you if you go out into the forests um in britain today you can see them um obviously we have some boar now in britain and um, they did used to be native neanderthals were also living surrounded by megafauna true big big beasts um except they weren't like the woolly kind <laughs> um they were the the warm forest kind so you have forest rhinoceros different species you can... a rhinoceros in europe Oh, yeah, because wow. we had woolly rhinos during the cold periods and Neanderthals hunted them as well. Um, but these are a different species. They're not the same as the ones in um, Africa and Asia today. This is an extinct species, um, okay. but they were like associated with warmer climates. So we call them forest rhinoceros, um, water buffalo and a straight tusked elephant species um, that's massive, um, sort of bigger than mammoths even. Wow. Um, and hippopotamus. Um, so yeah, there was there was even hippos up in Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> a real eclectic mix. Oh yeah, I mean it's actually it's the native interglacial fauna that we would have if there was no people around and it was perhaps a degree warmer or so. Mm. Um, but there's there's you know there's been some interesting discussions about you know rewilding and what's what's missing and people often focus on the you know the big predators like lynx or you know things like this, but these massive forest creatures are in theory they're also the native species we should have we should have elephants in our forest but we don't um, and how do we know that all of these animals were living in europe do we have their um bones that, that oh remain? yeah 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 they're all over the place i mean um you basically the basic principle for archaeology is um you look at the depth of things you know the, the deeper it is the older it is um but we also now have like just as i said before a huge huge array of different dating methods so we can directly date either the bones or um, beyond that period um, where radiocarbon dating works and um, you can date the sediments around stuff um, mm. or teeth themselves things like this and um, so we're quite sure that this is <laughs> this is a real thing <laughs> how many um, meters deep do you have to dig into the ground to get to a to get to the emian Period. It depends. Um, in some places it might be 12 metres, 40 metres, um, or it might be much less. It depends on what's happened since, because mm. you have to remember that, in fact, one of the reasons that um, for a long time people didn't really know if Neanderthals were sort of that happy in, in a forest environment is because there's not that many Emian sites preserved. And um, that's because after the Emian, there was another really harsh glacial period, not the last one before the time we live now. It's like the pen, you know, one before that would basically remove through erosion a lot of these warm, um, warm period uh, sediments and deposits. So the few places we find Emian age deposits, sometimes they're in caves, but not that much. Um, but around lake basins, you know, where you have these natural thick, thick, thick buildups. And as long as they don't get scraped off by anything, um or eroded out um then you've got like this really deep lovely deep archive um and it the same goes for periods for warm periods before the emian so the one prior to that again we have similar sort of range of animals um and then the one before that you know so so we have this this deep archive showing how like this these pulses of of animal life completely changed over tens and tens and tens of millennia yeah, and I, I guess where would you place Neanderthals in that chain of um, prey and predator? They obviously, like you said, that they hunted um, rhinoceros, but would they were they vulnerable to being attacked by lions and bears? Yeah, they would have always been vulnerable if they let the guard down for sure. We do mm. have a few um, a few sites here and there across Europe through time where we can see Neanderthal bones, like the odd bit of leg or something that has been gnawed um, by mm. animals. There's there's even I think a site in Poland where is it a child's tooth or a fingertip or something that um has been through the digestive system of a large raptor so like a large bird of prey probably an eagle or something oh or a vulture and um, so yeah now and then <laughs> they were the prey um, but most of the time they were the top top hunters in their environment and we know this because the ordering of damage on the bones of the animals so um the the gnawing and the biting marks from from like hyena teeth they're always underneath the cut marks from Neanderthal stone tools. N mm. Not like always, but 90% of the time you can tell that it's Neanderthals who had those carcasses first. The scene that we're in right now in this hornbeam forest, 123,000 years ago, we're in Germany. Um, and this is a deer hunt 
um, that that was going on. And we know this because we have these fantastic um, preserved sites. Uh, a German site called Neumark Nord. It's an old uh, lake basin, and it it makes sense that Neanderthals are going to be attracted to water, just like other animals are. Um, they need that water, especially if it's a warm, hot world. Um, but also, it's the place where game is going to be reliably found. Um, it's difficult to hunt animals, even big animals like elephant. You'd be surprised that they can really just disappear into forests. Um, but you know that all animals are going to be coming to find water. Mm. Um, and so at this site, Neumark Nord, there's actually remains of hundreds and hundreds of animals that have been excavated from around this this huge lake basin. Um, and amongst um, a lot of deer, fallow deer, there are two um, stags, really nice, you know, big stags, almost complete skeletons, but they were definitely hunted. Um, and they, they come with sort of Neanderthal-style bullet holes. It's it's the holes from the spears. We can actually see that. Wow. They have a different anatomy to us in many ways. They're not exactly the same. And is there particular aspects of how they were made up that made them better hunters than we would be? It's funny, you know, not many people say, were they better than us? Usually they're like, are they more rubbish than us? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean... Their bodies don't seem to have been built for long distance running. Mm. Uh, we can tell from the thickness of the bone, although part that if, part of the of the thickness of their bone is genetic, it's probably also to do with uh, massive amounts of activity. But we can also see that on the bones where the muscles were attaching, that they were definitely like hugely active, even from childhood. Mm. Um, they were probably walking either long distances or just around a lot or both um but they don't seem to have been especially well adapted to like the kind of long distance running that our bodies are, are more obviously built for but they were probably still quite fast mm. just over short bursts <laughs> um so they may have been very good at sort of ambush hunting yeah. where you've got to wait and then suddenly explode you know and and really go for it and they definitely as far as we can tell, we're probably stronger than us. Um, so they may have had a much more sort of devastating spear thrust than we might have done. Um, their hands, they, their actual grip around the shaft of a spear, seems like they were just as dexterous, you know, most of the time, but they were very strong. So, so that's an interesting combination for, you know, control of your weapons at the same time as having sort of real brute force um, that would be necessary if you're trying to take down animals without using ranged weapons like thrown spears. Um, it's really quite something. Hello, I'm Peter. What we try and do in this podcast is not just to analyse the history of the year we're exploring, but also to evoke it in a visual way. Someone who aims to do the exact same thing is Jordan Lloyd. Jordan is a superb visual historian and one of the world's leading photo colorists. You might know a little bit about colorization already. The process involves finding old black and white imagery and transforming the image so the vivid reality of the actual moment is recovered. If you've looked on our website recently, you'll have seen some brilliant examples of Jordan's work. Striking portraits of Abraham Lincoln and Mark Twain, the streets of Chinatown in San Francisco in 1896. All of these are transformed by revolutionary new digital processes. Travels Through Time is very proud to be partnering with Jordan. You can buy prints of his work at colorgraph.co. That's color spelt the American way, C-O-L-O-R, colorgraph.co. And if you enter the code TTT at the checkout, you'll get 10% off everything. They make wonderful presents. So do check out colorgraph.co. I mean, those differences in technology, I guess, are really vital. And maybe that's a good place to, to, to move on to your final scene that you'd like to talk to us about, because that's focused very much about tools and about and materials that Neanderthals were using. Yeah, we're sort of we can we can be back in this Emian Emian world. We've gone back again <laughs> um, into the into this warm world full of oak trees. We're actually back at the Neumark Lakeshore again, but in another season, very likely not not exactly the same century, probably not the same millennium even, um, but across the lake basin. And I wanted us to come to this scene because it's another way to sort of open our minds up to how the forest world changed uh, what Neanderthals did and, and offered them new opportunities because obviously it was challenging 
but also there were new opportunities there. Um, so they they hunted differently, like we've just been talking about, but also the forest itself is a hugely rich resource in terms of the plants and mm. the vegetation. So we know from from loads of sites through different periods with Neanderthals that, that they definitely were using plant foods, but what they would eat would vary depending on when and you know geographically where they live so in the near east you get things like olives and you know stuff like that um in northern europe during the emian it's the kind of things that you would find in forests today so um nuts hazelnuts um berries like sloes maybe things like this there are sites where we see sort of charred remains of these things which um which may be indicating that those were actually eaten but it's not that easy to sort of just collect plant food um, you know if you've ever done any bushcraft in a, in a British forest it's quite tricky because a lot of the things that, that you think you might eat like acorns they need a lot of processing to take away the toxins and stuff so it takes time um, and effort to actually eat and, and survive in a deciduous forest but it does seem that Neanderthals were using plants more in previous periods um we don't see on their teeth we don't see patterns of polish and wear that really look like they were um either processing with their mouths plant materials or eating a lot of plant stuff um but when the emian uh, for samples from the emian it looks a bit more like they're actually doing that and in some cases it almost looks like prehistoric agricultural communities um you know that, that they're doing something with their teeth that involves a lot of uh, you know abrasive materials which is probably plants and um, so we can't see exactly what that is um from from the teeth but but we do get hints and it's probably going to be quite diverse because um as i say in other in other settings we know that they were some they were eating grass seeds probably charring them and there's also really cool evidence that they were eating water lily roots um so if if there was this lush vegetated environment during the emian we can be sure that they were they were curious and they would have been exploring what was available. But one thing that's really nice from this place, this uh, site at Neumark Nord, is like a tiny little window into the level of interaction with with plants um, that was going on. So first of all, we know that they were making spears with wood. From these sites, in the Emian, they were using yew wood. In other periods, they were selecting woods for, for their wooden artefacts um, that always make sense from where they are. You know, they're choosing the best of what's there. But a really absolutely amazing object from Neumark. Um, looks like almost, you know, nothing. It doesn't look very interesting when you first see it. But what it is, is really, like, jaw-dropping. So it's a flake, it's a flint flake, with this tiny little brown scrap stuck on it and it's organic and when it was analyzed it was found to be full of oak tannins incredibly concentrated this is not really this is not some kind of sort of natural blob of stuff that's stuck on it what it seems to be is that this is a remnant of probably some kind of binding that was around this flake so it may have been part of a composite tool you know made of more than one part and bound together okay. which we know they were doing from other places and it's been preserved because of being soaked in oak tannins and um, and so that's exactly the reason that we find bog bodies um, you know these celtic and, and iron age bog bodies that we find um, across europe those have this incredible preservation because of the tannins from the peats these are natural um, plant extracts that come out into the water and something s similar has preserved this little scrap on the tool and to get oak tannins you have to macerate you have to really process bark so what we're probably looking at is that this is Neanderthals doing some kind of tanning okay. um, using oak bark, um, probably for working animal hides. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so we have abundant evidence from many different settings um, that they definitely were processing animal skins, fresh animal skins, and in some cases dried ones. So that, that suggests that they were um, making leather. Um but to, to actually use tannins and sort of go this extra stage of, of using, you know, tanning the leather to preserve it, to give it colour, to, to help keep it waterproof. Um, this is all shown by this one tiny little thing on a flake, you know, and if nobody had bothered to analyse that, we wouldn't know it. Yeah. Um, and it's by itself, it sort of just like seems anomalous. But just this year, there was published a at a French site, um, a tiny little 
twist of fibres that were preserved underneath just a natural mineral film on a, on a stone flake um, from this uh, rock shelter. And we know that this, this mineral sort of preservation process, there's, it's all over lots of different artefacts. This particular one has got this little twist of fibres. And when they were looked at at super magnification, it really looks like it is a three-ply thread. So wow. that's where you have three, three little threads that are all twisted in one direction. And then you twist the three of them together in the other direction. So it's an S twist versus a Z twist, mm. which is exactly what you have, you know, in how we make modern, you know, like if you have a linen scarf or something, yeah. you, you're going to have this kind of production. And when uh, when they analysed that chemically, it's it comes out as matching conifer, conifer bark, maybe conifer root. So although it's really small, it's not even a cord, you know, it's, it's more like a thread. It really does suggest that Neanderthals were doing quite complex things with plants. Now, this French site is not as old as the Emin. It's later, but it's another it's another tiny window into what we know is missing among hunter gatherers. Most of their stuff is perishable. Mm. You know, it's made from plants. Um, or bits of animal and that's the stuff that just very rarely survives in the record and so although when we get these little one-offs like this this twist of bark or this little blob of um of tanned stuff at Neumark in the Emian um you know they they are one-offs but but they still are revealing something to us about the the, the complexity of Neanderthals' understanding of, of the materials all around them and what those forests could actually offer them. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, that's that's my little sort of final scene. And um, the fact that, that such a, even though it's such a tiny amount that survived, we can assume that even that if that has survived over such a long period of time, that when it, it was originally made, it would be part of something quite long thread or that kind yeah, of I mean, thing. Yeah, I mean, the thread, who knows what that was for? It's so small. Mm. It's not like rope. It's not like string even. You know, it is very small. So, I mean, not everybody is, uh, you know, totally happy with that because it seems so outlandish. But for me, because we have this this other thing from Neumark, even though it's much older, it still is really pointing at complex complex understanding of how you process plant materials basically mm. and we can see it in how they make their wood artifacts as well like the spears yeah. they're not just pointed sticks so they they know how to use the stump end for the tip of the spear because that's the hardest part of the wood and more than that they actually offset where they're carving the spear they they take it offset through the grain of the wood because that makes it more robust so if if we can see that level of craftsmanship in woodworking why would we not expect something similar with other kinds of plant materials it's just we we just don't see it if they were tanning hides to do that that takes quite a long time you know it can take weeks so that might be telling us something about how their wider lives were organised in the Emian. Maybe they were not moving around as much in a forest world as they would have been in an open world. If people were moving around less, perhaps the groups were a little bit smaller. We don't know, but but it all ties together that the hunting is different, the animals are different, the kind of plants are different, maybe the seasonality is different as mm-hmm. well. So it's everything sort of comes together to, to show you a completely unexpected, totally different world that the Neanderthals were actually still completely at home in, you know, and we don't expect that. Certainly a a much more complex picture than the stereotypical caveman that people might think of. Definitely. Yeah. With composite tool technology where you are, where you have a a piece of stone um, and you make an adhesive, um, maybe just as a handle or to stick another wooden handle onto it, um, that's also very skilled. We can see... Um, that there are there is different ways that they did that. Some of them used some of the entertels used bitumen, so like natural asphalt um, that you can just find sometimes in geological deposits, but not everywhere. That's in the Near East, and um, there's a Romanian site too. Um, but there's also a hint that that might have been going on in um, from a Spanish site where we can see in the tartar on a Neanderthal's tooth, there's a hint of um, of bitumen in there. So that might have been going on in spain um but other adhesives we know they were making was um birch tar which you have to actually cook that out of the bark and you know pay attention to the fire you can't just stick it in a fire it'll burn you have to kind of 
um, make sure that it's sort of got a low oxygen atmosphere and things like this so it's kind of like damped down and um, we have to watch it for a long time so that's quite complex and then we also seem to have um, in Italy there's a recent, a recent find suggesting that they were using plant resins mixed with beeswax wow. um, <laughs> so those are all quite complex production systems and the question is, did all Neanderthals know how to do those things? Mm. Um, or, you know, maybe maybe they did all know. Maybe they did all observe and, and sort of learn through a through a, a an, an informal process. Um, but perhaps some of them were just better at it, and so they did it more. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know, that's that's a possibility. I don't see why we wouldn't be looking at some level of, um, you know, individual craftsmanship and and. Um, individuals being better at something and doing it a bit more often and things like this it, so- it sounds absolutely fascinating I-, I love the idea of being able to take such a tiny tiny remain like a kind of grain of sand from the massive human history human historical evidence and being able to find out so much about a people just from something so tiny I think it's quite exciting yeah definitely well I'm gonna ask you now a final question before we have to come back to the present um from the Eamon period I'm kind of jealous because it sounds quite warm and lush and it's getting (laughs) a bit cold in London at the moment but um if you could bring back one Neanderthal memento with you into the present what would you like to bring well if I'm if I'm restricting myself to the Eamon only so sort of this 10,000 year period roughly beginning around 126,000 years ago then I think I would probably try and bring back one of the spears uh, that killed those deer at Neumark Nord because <laughs> we ha- we don't have hardly any spears um, from from the Neanderthal world the ones we have are all amazing and they each have given us you know um, massive insights into their technology and that spins out into insights about the society so i would like one of those spears i'd like to know what it was made of mm. how it was made whether it was repaired what other animals it killed you know i'd just like to know everything <laughs> so like, i want one of them spears <laughs> so you wouldn't use it yourself it would be for research purposes only i might caress it a bit and then <laughs> do some research on it <laughs> nice. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Rebecca. It's it's so exciting to um, try something new and to go so far back into the past. It's it's um, really different, and I've I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Well, thank you so much, and I really I really hope I really hope the listeners enjoy it, and I hope they I hope they like having their minds blown chronologically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. That was me, Artemis Irvin, talking to Dr. Rebecca Ragsykes about the Neanderthals who lived 126,000 years ago. I hope our conversation persuaded you that you should go and read her brilliant book, Kindred. It's published by Bloomsbury and is available to buy now. But if you are of the podcast persuasion, as I suspect many of you are, you can also listen to Kindred as an audiobook on Audible, and it's being read by Rebecca herself. Check out our website for more information and resources about this episode and many others at tttpodcast.com. But until next week, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.